Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, where we get behind, beneath, inside ideas and people and concepts that are fascinating to us. We get, in, as it were, under their skin. Not under the skin in, in an irritating way. Why, that would be ridiculous. Um, I am in Stockholm performing my Rebirth tour on the 17th. You've got to come and see me there, even if you're not in Sweden right now. Go there to Sweden and see me at the Waterfront Theatre. Tickets are available on russellbrand.com. Then, the following Tuesday on the 20th, I'm in Amsterdam at the UFAS Arena. Come and see me there. Again, tickets available on russellbrand.com. Furthermore, while I'm flogging stuff, check out my book, Recovery, because many of the things I discuss here with Dr. Professor, Dr. Dr. Professor, Professor, Professor Jordan Peterson are discussed in the book, Recovery, from the 12-step perspective. But now it's time for... Under the skin. Try to avoid making a mental pun there. My guest on Under the Skin today is Dr. Jordan Peterson, clinical psychologist, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and author of books including Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief, and his recent bestseller, 12 Rules for Life. First garnering mainstream media attention in 2016 when he objected to compelled speech legislation in Canada, he has steadily been making a name for himself as a voice of the anti-political correctness movement and has cultivated a slew of predominantly young male followers, touted by some as an academic rock star and the most important thinker in the West and by others as a provocateur and firebrand of the alt-right. He is also part of a new internet-savvy group of controversial thinkers that have been deemed the intellectual dark web. Jordan Peterson, thank you for coming on Under the Skin. Thanks very much for the invitation. I'm excited to speak to you because my interest in your work was either prior to or somehow abstract from the controversies mm-hmm. that have brought you to mainstream attention. And I was thinking then as a clinical psychologist, I was wondering about how uh, interwoven the relationship between psychology and and mythology and archetypes is? Well, one of the things that happened, I think, was that when the political scandal broke around me in Canada, which was in September 2016, people came to check me out because of the scandal, but they stayed because of the psychology. By that time, I already had about 300 hours of YouTube lectures, which probably saved me in some sense, because when I was being protested against, say, and warned by the university about what I was doing because it was hypothetically contravening the law, people went on my site to find out what sort of person I was, and I had pretty much everything I'd said to students in the last 30 years taped and, and ready for for what public viewing. My website had already had about a million hits then, and um, people got very interested in the psychology, and it's not surprising to me because what I've been teaching since 1993 is, I think, unbelievably practical. No, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I've always been interested in trying to improve people's mental health. And I viewed putting the lectures online as, a, as part and parcel of that. It's like there were a lot of smart clinicians in the 20th century. They learned a lot about how you could put your life together, decrease anxiety, decrease depression, orient yourself more effectively in your communication and with regards to your long-term plans. And 
understand your dreams and position yourself properly in the world. And it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to be able to bring that work to the broader attention of, well, now it's millions of people. It's it's not surprising, it helps, you know. I mean, these people were geniuses, so the fact You're that... You're talking about what, Freud, Freud, Jung. Jung, Carl Adler, Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow. There was a slew of existential psycho psychologists in the 1950s, humanists in the 1960s. There's, there's probably a dozen or so, maybe 15 of great clinicians who laid the groundwork, really, for clinical psychiatry and also for clinical psychology. And they, and, and also developed, well, developed psychotherapy and therapeutic conversations as we know it. Like all uh, emergent myths, it must bear the inflection of the culture in which it was conceived. Uh, this is why I am particularly interested in the areas of psychiatry and psychology that are resourced from are uh, older materials mm -hmm. such as uh, mythology and mm -hmm. archetypes and I know that particularly in the, the, some of the names that you mentioned mythology uh, is used as a co to uh, supply a common language yeah yeah well and that's I think that's the right way of looking at it to some degree it's like people we act out stories that's why we tell stories right that's why people are attracted to stories because stories are the best way of describing our lives and stories have a pattern, or they wouldn't be stories. I mean, that's why there's comedy, right? That's where everything turns out the way everyone wants it to. That's why there's tragedy, when everything falls apart. That's why there's adventure and romance, and that covers a lot of territory, right? Adventure, romance, comedy, tragedy. And, you know, people like Carl Jung in particular, he was, he was the deepest analyst of stories, I would say. Um, there's a Romanian guy named Mircea Eliade, who was also a very a historian of religions, who was also a very uh, remarkable scholar and very useful if, if you're interested in understanding the fundamental patterns of stories. But Jung was very interested in the deepest structure of stories. Imagine that humans have languages. Every human culture has a language. But languages have a commonality, right? They're all languages, and they have a universal grammar that was... That was uh, Noam Chomsky's great discovery. Now, yes. And stories are like that. Every culture has its own stories, but the stories have a universal grammar. And so Jung was the first person who, who laid the groundwork for, for, for discovering what that universal grammar was. And it's crucially important work. You, know, you could say that what a religious, a religion is, is a, a religion is a set of stories that comes very close to the grammar of stories. So and so, this, there aren't they aren't stories that you can dispense with. The hero story is like that. Jung, you say, did great early work in mapping out what might be the etymology or the sort of the ulterior truth from which these patterns emerge. Yep. Um, my interest in this is that because like when Jung works with image and yep. uh, mandala in say for example the red book that it's, it's that what it's what is suggested by our ability to observe patterns and the fact that we respond to patterns is that there is that there is some kind of universal frequency mm -hmm. that we are responding to well i had two clients who knew nothing about jungian psychotherapy both of whom were badly fragmented they were both women they both had i would say variants of post traumatic stress disorder they had other problems as well and both of them produced spontaneous drawings that were first very fragmented and disorganized. And then as they put themselves together, 
and were ordering themselves, let's say, they produced drawings that were increasingly symmetrical and regular and took on the Mandela-like configurations that Jung described. And so that was absolutely fascinating to watch that. And he thought of those patterns as manifestations of spontaneous order. And you see them in cathedrals. Yes. You know, the great rose windows in cathedrals are Mandela's. And the rose windows and the entire cathedral structure is something like it's hard to describe exactly, but a cathedral is something like the optimal balance of structure and light. It's something like that. And the Gothic cathedrals are also reminiscent of forests, right, with their, with their arching branches and the lights coming through, like, the light coming through the leaves. Mm. It's reminiscent of that. But there's something about the cathedral that expresses the idea of perfect structure. And there's something about a Mandela that expresses that. And something about music that expresses that as well. And it's all... They're all ways of trying to symbolically represent how things could be if they were put in the proper state of balance. Harmony. Harmony is the right way of thinking Harmony. about it. Harmony. Yes. Yeah. I suppose all of these forms, the idea that there could perhaps be across the various disciplines, strata and forms mm -hmm. of expression, some kind of golden rule, seem to infer a hmm, oneness, a truth, that in earlier forms of language may be expressed as the idea of God, wholeness, oneness. Uh, where, do you, where do you stand on the... Uh, do, you, do you believe in God? Well, the, the Jungian idea is that, that there's not much distinction between what Jung described as the archetype of the self and the idea of God. Mm. And the self would be something like the, the totality of your being across time. Jung thought of Christ as a symbol of the self. And the reason for which is a very profound idea. It's an amazingly profound idea. I mean, Go on, unpack that well, a bit. Well, you can, if, you, if you think about the, the story of Christ from a psychological perspective, what, and, and you strip it down to its essence, what you essentially see is that the story of Christ is the ultimate tragedy. And the reason for that is that the ultimate tragedy is the worst possible thing happening to the best possible person. Hmm. Right? That's the ultimate tragedy. That's what makes it an archetype. You can't go past that for tragic, right? Mm. So it's an innocent man who is completely sinless, who is working on behalf of, of, of only the good and the truth, broken and destroyed, early and young, and betrayed as well. So that's the ultimate tragedy. And so then, and then there's, a, there's a, comedy, a comedic element to it in, in the technical sense, because a comedy has a happy Technically, ending. Technically, wouldn't it require a flaw? You know, like for the for the for, for it to work comedically, there would need to be a flaw well, in it, Christ. Well, is it that he is God made flesh? Is that the flaw? Well, there. Uh, it depends on what you mean by comedy. I mean, we we tend to, as modern people, to think of comedy as something that's humorous. But technically, if you're looking at story structure, a comedy is just a story that has a happy ending, right? That has a positive ending. And that's of course, all. it's the resurrection story that makes Christ's story a. a, a a comedy. Ta-da! Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, yeah, this went so badly wrong, but there's this possibility of resurrection. And the way that I read that psychologically, and I, I'm not trying to make any comments about the metaphysics of it, is that there's a part of people that's the self, the Jungian self, let's say. The capital that, S self. The capital Jung. S self, yes. That, that, that is capable of sustaining itself across successive deaths and rebirths. And and everyone really understands this. It's one of the things that's most fun to teach people because, you know, when, when you're moving through life and you have a, a plan or a dream and it shatters, you know, someone dies or a relationship breaks apart or you, you have a terrible upset in your career or you become ill in some unexpected way, then everything around you falls apart. 
and you plunge into a well, you plunge into a chaotic underworld. The belly of the whale. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, exactly that. And then maybe you stay there because it isn't necessarily the case that people get out. You know, people die. People are in despair permanently. But frequently, something tragic and terrible befalls you, and you fall apart. And you learn something profound as a consequence and you put yourself back together and when you come back out You're more than you were when you went in and that's happening in, at a small scale every time you learn something You know you if you ever really learn something. It's usually painful It usually means that you have to recognize that you're wrong in some important way You have to let that part of you that's wrong die and then you have to let yes. a new part of you Okay, so the self imagine that you undergo a series of transformations in your life there are there collapses into the chaotic underworld and then re many resurrections that happens continually and that's what molds your character yes. the self is this thing that manages the transformations across all those across that manages all those transformations so you could say here's another way of thinking about it you could identify with what you understand that's what ideologues do huh. you could identify with you don't with what you don't understand and that's what sort of seekers after truth um uh, identify with or you could identify with the process of moving between those states You know sometimes you know what you're doing. You know where you are you, you you're you're in control and, and and you can become arrogant and identify with that and then become too static about it, right? Or you can be in despair and everything is chaotic and you can identify with that in which case you're nihilistic or you can view yourself as the thing that moves across the transformations and that's that's the right way to 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 Conceptualize yourself as you're the thing that m maintains constancy across transformations. One imagines that your experience uh, with the controversies uh, around the uh, linguistics uh, and legislation in Canada must have felt like one of those plunges into the depths on some level. Would you say? Did oh, you no. did you feel a sense of personal tragedy and fear and a, a concern about consequence or that there may be no way back that it could represent a kind of death or did it indeed represent a kind of death for you for one for which you are subsequently grateful? Well, I would say for the first four months when the political scandal broke, it was very unsettling for a variety of reasons. The first was that my Occupation as a clinical psychologist and as a professor was definitely in doubt I mean the university sent me two warning letters and that's a standard HR procedure usually you get three Right the third warning is stop or their consequences won't be good you have, if you work in human resources You have to especially if you're going to go after someone with tenure You have to document their misbehavior you have to provide them with warnings You have to tell them how they could get back on the right track and then if you have documented Refusal to comply with the warnings then they have grounds for dismissal. So Just, we were very worried about you were that. Close, you were close You were close to the yeah to some kind of personal or professional annihilation or certainly damage now What like this is for people just in case on the off chance that there are people that are unaware of the DLs I'll say it as I understand it and then you can tell me how I've got it wrong the government changed the law saying that there are neutral nouns that will that it, it mandatorily would be applied to people who identified as transgender. You said that is an imposition on freedom of speech. Whilst I would make a decision whether or not I would, if I was meeting a transgender mm -hmm. person, I would talk to them how they wanted to be talked to. The fact that you're making it law is an impediment on the freedom of speech, and then it kicked off. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good summary of it. Yeah, I would say. I mean, my sense. There, there were two things I objected to. One was that the government, for the first time in the history of Canada, and really 
in a move that was unprecedented in English common law, under English common law, actually mandated the content of voluntary speech. And I thought, I don't care what your excuse is for doing that. That's no go zone as far as I'm concerned. That's not happening. Even though, right, this is what it seems to me like sort of, uh, help me to understand this, right? Yeah. Because what I'm always interested in, I think, is power and yeah. where power is. Yeah. And like, you know, I subsequently looked at what your views are towards like sort of post-structuralist and the alt-left. And like a lot of things I think, yeah, you're right. That, that, you know, I, I agree with that. But... But what I th the reason I think that the sort of the controversy had fuel on both mm -hmm. sides, mm -hmm. the reason it had an engine on the other side, is because it seems that, uh, and, and indeed having watched other interviews and the objections that other interviewers have presented to you, it seems to me that a, a, like it seems that a transgender person is in a position of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. But you're saying this is not about transgender. This is about language and it's about oppression. Mm -hmm. That's what you're saying. Well, that that was my claim: is that this wasn't about transgenderism at all, and I would about say, which you got no strong view. I'm guessing, or um, I don't, I don't have the sort of strong view that I would, what think I was sufficiently qualified to make political statements about. Yeah, like Chappelle goes, I, mean, I don't I understand it, but pff, it's not my. Well, I basically look at the research, you know, and I mean, the research for transgendered kids is quite clear: is that most of them desist by the time they're eighteen. You know, and I'm basically guided by... Where is this in like Scandinavia, scientist. where they check that stuff out? Yeah, yeah that's right. That's, mm. that's right. Now, people have criticized that research, like all research, but it's the best research that's been done on the topic. But well, the other problem was with the legislation was that I felt that it was an attempt by the radical left to gain the linguistic territory and, and to define the, the terms of the debate. You know, and, and I thought that was very dangerous. So I was objecting to that as well. Feel you now. Well, the thing that I'm interested in here, Jordan, is I don't feel like the radical left is a very powerful group. Am I mm. being naive here? I mean, possibly in the world of academia, particularly, you know, like, I feel like they are sort of representative of a coalition mm -hmm. built around identity politics issues that would seem particularly important to people. Like my general view is, if you identify something, call no problem. It's none of my business. Mm -hmm. That's basically my mm -hmm. opinion. I'll right. I'll call you what you want me to call you. I'm right. happy that you're speaking to me. <laughs> but like, but like, from, but like, but do you see a sort of the uh, sort of the a sort of extreme left, or as a powerful organisation, like well, you know, certainly in the universities. So what they can get what done? They could, for example, they could get that legislation passed. Yes, that. They, well, and I think the situation is different in the U.S. than it is in other countries. I think the political situation in the U.S. is actually more balanced than it is in most Western countries, because I would say the the left, the radical left, has a has a pretty decent hold on a number of institutions, and and first and foremost of those would be the universities, but then the conservatives you know, aren't without power in the United States so you, because they occupy most of the elected positions now. Do you? So, but um, it's not the case in Canada. You don't want to be identified with any of those groups, am I right? Like, you wouldn't say that you're a person that's on the right or the left or conservative or really... I know you didn't say no, whether well, or my, not you believed in God. Well, my political views are complicated because I'm temperamentally liberal because I'm high in openness, which is a creativity dimension. And people who are high in openness tend to be liberal because they like free-flowing information and they like, uh, what would you say... Fluid boundaries, because information can move back and forth across the boundaries. How amazing. So, 
So temperamentally, so I like that. Ideologically, you reject these taxonomies and you identify basically on the, ba on the basis of research, like empiricism in a sense. You could say, like, you know, I'm an open-minded type of person. This yeah. language is clinical psychology. So your, yeah. your faith is clinical psychology. It's research. Well, I'm, we, I've done a fair bit of research in my lab on yes. the temperamental predictors of political predisposition. And we can predict what parties people are going to align themselves with by studying their personality. So liberal types, liberal left types, are high in a trait called openness. And open people, you're a very open person. And you can tell because you think laterally, you know. You have an idea, and then it reminds you of a whole bunch of other ideas. And so you'll move laterally across ideas. And a more conservative person, they'll stay within the category. You know, and so your, your conversational style is, is marked by, by divergences. And that's, yes. that's actually called divergent thinking. It's a hallmark of Is creativity. It well, it's good if you want to be creative. The problem with, there's, there's a price for everything, hey? The price for creativity is that it's hard to catalyze an identity. Because you're interested in everything. That's the first thing. And your interest will flit from one thing to another. So one of the problems that creative people have, well, they have two. One is they have a hard time establishing an identity. And the second is they have a hard time monetizing their creativity. It's very difficult to be a creative person and make money. You can make money for other people, but usually you're dead by then, so it's not very helpful for you. Jordan, both of those problems are as a result of external structures, the imposition of external structures on the individual, i.e. make money. That's a you know, problem of capitalism uh, and you know, commerce more broadly. And uh, the other one of identity, similarly. You know, so is, is there a sort of a peculiar contradiction in uh, around identity in that like it seems to me on one level that you reject taxonomies you're saying that these systems eg if you say women are being paid less money your argument would be well hold on a minute there are other factors other than gender it here it's i don't like agree with the data argument. it's a funny thing because the intersectional feminists always uh, always claim that you should take other factors into account, right? Woman, man isn't enough. White, yes. black isn't enough. Well, I yes. say, well, there's a there's a pay gap between men and women, but it's not only due to to gender. It's due to all sorts of things, and you have to take them into account. So it's really an intersectional argument. So it's, it's quite funny that I get hell for it. <laughs> it's an intersectional argument. So I like so. Do you feel then, because what I sense is happening, like trying to understand where like our worldviews would align and yeah. where potentially there would be opposition between you and I. What I'm trying to, because it seems to me looking at your work, it's like, oh, I don't agree with the, the way that this information is being compiled. I don't agree with the assumptions that you're trying to saddle that piece of data with. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that it's about critical thinking, a very post-structuralist mm -hmm. idea, you know. Um, but also, what I have noticed is that much of your, many of your theories seem to be subsequently alloyed to some unpleasant ideas around sort of tradition, conservatism, mm -hmm. oppression, even. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? Because, like, you know, like it would be like it would be well easy for you to. Like, I think you have said, I don't care about whether people are transgender or not. I just don't want no oppressive laws around language. But it would also mm -hmm. be easy for you to say, I don't think there's any. You know, I've heard you say on the news, fairness, fairness. But it does seem that there is some mischief somehow in you around the issues such as gender inequality. Well, there's probably in lots the... of mischief in me around all sorts of things. But I think that mostly. I look at the political landscape from the perspective of an informed 
biologically oriented social scientist. And so when people lay out their particular theories, um, they, they, don't sound, they don't sound updated to me. Like one, one example is that the left, for example, tends to lay the blame for inequality at the feet of the Western hierarchical structure and capitalism. That's just wrong. Equality, inequality is a problem and it's the proper concern of the left, I would say, and it's a proper concern because inequality is a deadly problem, but it's way more serious than anything you can blame on capitalism. Every single society that's ever been studied, for as far back as people are able to study, suffers from the problem of inequality. This, I work with this Native American tribe in, in, in northern Vancouver. I'm a member of the tribe, actually. Now they're called the Kwakwakwak people. And, uh, Say that again. That's not the sort of word you get away just saying once. Kwakwakwakwak. Oh, that's yeah. a tough bit of it is, native it is. language it right is. there. It's, it's a tough one to spell. Because the well, problem with me is I'd say too many quas. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, br they're, they're brilliant artists. They're, they're part of that West Coast native tradition of art, which I think is a great tradition. What but, type of eye is that? Um, well, exaggerated eyes. Almost, it's kind of a hallucinogenic art in some uh, sense. And the, the figures, the, the animals are very... Are, are very uh, uh, graphic they're very graphically portrayed I would say they have large almond eyes and bright colors and um, the art's very beautiful the Haida art is probably the best known variant of it but the Kwakwakwak is, is, is similar to that and they used to have this ceremony called the potlatch and what you would do in a potlatch is usually you had to be comparatively wealthy to have a potlatch and you would give away everything you had Whoa. And that was their solution to inequality, because what would happen in the native societies, just like every other society, is that as time progressed, everything would become owned by a very small number of people. And that's a bad recipe for long-term stability. So they would have these giant parties that would often last weeks, wow. where the rich would demonstrate their wealth and also, I suppose, their commitment to their own provision their own capacity to provision the future by giving everything away. But, and I'm only using that as an example to show that the problem of inequality is not something that you can lay at the feet of capitalism. It's a way worse problem than that. I agree with you and I understand. Uh, you're saying that capitalism occurs far too late down the line to be oh, the genesis oh, oh, of a absolutely. problem that's indigenous to the yeah, to well, human you beings. Also... But what about some of these, like, you know, and. I would be very careful too. Like, you know, I'd have no problem saying I believe in God all day yeah. long. I believe in God. But, like, I would, politically, I would be a little more cautious about saying, oh, I agree with this party or that party. Because I sort yeah. of don't feel that my political views are demonstrated within the sphere of mainstream politics because they operate on such a prohibited frequency because of, the, you know, the power of transnational organisations, the irrelevance of national sovereignty when it comes to ordinary people asserting power. So, you know, it becomes sort of kind of too complex for me. But what I can see is interesting about, say, you know, even if you take uh, sort of socialism and perhaps you know like the I, I suspect or sense that one of the issues you take is it's sort of continual annihilation of like take first take out god then take out man then take out woman then take out everything to all we have is this miasma of meaninglessness i, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily put that at the feet i just of, made it up I, well i wouldn't necessarily put that at the that feet of socialism it. per se what would you say that is well that's a complicated one i mean part is it of, happening or did, am i wrong I think, it, I think it's happened in many ways. I think a lot of that is a consequence of the hypothetical conflict between science and religion. 
Do you think that's, hypothetical? That's, well, because I'm not so sure there is a conflict. There, well, look, there materialism can't, there can't and be a fundamental conflict because the world is one thing fundamentally, right? Everything fits that's together. Great. So there can't actually be a conflict. If the religious realm exists and the scientific realm exists, they have to be unifiable at some point. Now, the more materialistic scientists, like, or the what, what the more atheistic scientist types like Sam Harris would deny essentially that there's any validity to religious dogma, although he certainly believes that there's a spiritual element to life. So I think that what happened, at least in part, and this is why the work of Jung, to return to Jung, is so important, is that we we weren't we didn't understand that truth comes in different forms depending on its application. It's a tricky thing. There's the truths that apply when you're attempting to describe the transformations of the material world. And there's the truths that apply when you're trying to determine how it is that you should act while you're alive. And those obviously those have to come into alignment, but they're not in alignment right now. And my sense, and this is a sense that's been uh, developed, at least in part from reading the great psychoanalysts, is that fictional accounts, metafictional accounts, even like biblical accounts, which are mythological, are stories about how it is that people should act, not stories about what the material structure of the world is. Like This is also where the fundamentalists have it wrong, as far as I'm concerned, because the fundamentalists like to think that the, the account in Genesis is a scientific theory yes, that can be yes, stacked yes. up against other scientific theories. In short, they are materializing the mythic. Yes, that's right. And which it's is unhelpful. Well, it's not a help. Well, first of all, it it's not, doesn't even make any sense because mm. the materialist types, in any real sense, weren't around until about 500 years ago, right? Mm. This was all was established by Descartes and, Descartes and, and uh, um, Bacon and, well, Galileo was another player, but th those were the two. The two major players established the scientific method. There weren't scientists before then. I mean, there were very intelligent people who could analyze the structure of the world. The ancient Greeks were obviously very rational and capable of philosophy, but there was no science until 500 years ago. And so obviously the people who wrote Genesis weren't scientists because there weren't any scientists. So whatever, and I also think that the, the world they describe is much more it's much better considered the world of experience than the world of material reality. And well, look here. Here's an idea. You, 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 you can you can try this one on for size. I've been trying this on audiences for quite a long time. So modern people say they think the world is made out of things, but if you watch them, that's not how they act. They act like the world is made out of potential, and so they'll even say things to each other like, "You're not living up to your potential." And you might say, "Well." What is this potential that you're talking about? You can't, it doesn't have a color, it doesn't have a shape, it doesn't have a mass, it doesn't have a size. Like there's nothing about it that's, that has a material, a material element. Yet, you believe that you're not living up to your potential. Everyone feels guilty about that. If someone accuses you of that, you feel bad about it. So then I might say, well, you also live not as if you confront a world of things, but as if you confront a world of possibility. And you hold each other accountable that way. Because I could say, well, you're not making all the use of the possibility that's presented to you. Because you're not living properly. You're not living honestly. You're not aiming high enough. You're not making everything of that potential that might be made. So what's that potential? Well, in religious stories, that potential, and you see this in the first story in Genesis, is that potential is what God creates order out of at the beginning of time. That's the idea that's expressed in that book, is that there's a potential whatever that is, and that 
something acts on it to bring it into reality. And there's a deeper idea in there too, which, which is a profound idea, which is that the potential, the actuality that you bring out of potential with truth is good. And so there's an ethical element to the story as well. And I actually think that that's, that's a great truth. I do believe that's the case, that the reality you bring out of potential with truth is good. And I think that's one of the most, that's one of the most profound discoveries of humanity, the ability to articulate that idea. It was articulated in the first chapter in Genesis. It's a brilliant idea. And it's associated with the idea that human beings are made in the image of God, because God is that which calls reality into being out of potential, but each of us do that as well yes, in a small yes. way. From well, that other. seems to me to just be true. Of course. All things that are in the manifest world were once unmanifest. Right. And many of the things that are unmanifest now will become manifest. And we can choose that to some degree. We have agency. Well, we seem to, yes. Yeah. So we, we certainly treat agency. each other like we do. Yeah, well, and, and you know, if I treat you like you don't have agency, you don't like it. It's not the grounds for a for a satisfactory long-term relationship. While we're in the Old Testament, I want to ask you something because we're in the book of Job that seems right up your alley. I looked at this book, I can't remember who wrote it anymore, you may even know, I expect so you, you will. It was a book of engravings from the book of Job by the British writer and poet William Blake. Mm -hmm. Blake had done this series of engravings based on the trials and tests that Job went through. Yep. In, these, in these series of engravings, Yahweh and, jo, uh, 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 Yahweh and Job are depicted as a sort of identical, you know, the ones in a, a celestial realm, ones in a terrestrial realm. At the beginning of the image, uh, Job and his family are depicted in front of the tree of life, the instruments hang in the trees, the animals are sleeping. By the end of the image, after these various trials, you know, that after Job has been tested, this, and we, we're to assume, I suppose, that there's been this journey of self, capital S, realisation, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, through these trials, uh, the, the instruments are being played, the animals are awake, you know, and there's a sort of a bright future and there's some sort of astronomical stuff, i.e. the positioning of the sun and moon is somehow meant to be significant also. And the person that wrote this book is a Jungian. Now, the thing that struck me deep, 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 and I've been struggling with it ever since, is there's a moment where Yahweh shows the behemoth and the leviathan to Job. And he says, these I made as mm -hmm. I made thee. Right. And then in this Jungian analysis of these engravings, the writer says that, the, that God requires of us that we be good, that goodness itself may exist, mm -hmm. that there is a, something beyond but comparable to neutrality in God the Creator, the idea of God the Creator. The image of the behemoth and the leviathan in these engravings is terrifying. Mm -hmm. The animalism of the behemoth, its musculature, mm -hmm. its rawness. The leviathan, sneaky, dark, deep, terrifying thing. This idea of agency and God, this relationship between the unmanifest and the manifest as achieved through an individual's relationship with truth and expression, seemed to me that it was saying something that was right on the precipice of my ability to understand and certainly to convey. Okay, so the first thing I would say is, well, one of the indications that you're open is the way that you phrased that question. Because there's like 30 things happening in that question wow. all at the same time. And one of the things that creative people do is they throw out like images, because your, your, your question was full of images. There's, you're trying to map territory that you don't understand. You say, here's an image, and here's an image, and here's an image, and here's an image, and there's something uniting all of those, but I don't know what it is. It's like, well, that's yeah. what artists do, by the way. And so that's a preliminary mapping of unexplored territory. 
And so we could take that apart a little bit. I mean, one of the things, so Job is objecting to his treatment because, of course, God has a bet with the devil, basically, that he can take Job down and make him curse fate. He basically bets the devil that he can turn Job into Cain. And God says, no, no, you, God says, no, you, the devil bets God that he can turn Job into Cain by tormenting him. And God says, no, Job's a good man. No matter what you do to him, he won't lose faith in being. That's essentially the bet. And you think, well, that's a hell of a thing for God to do. But then, and Job objects to God to some degree. And he's got his reasons, man. I mean, because everything's taken away from him. And God says, I made these things, the Leviathan. So that's like the terrible element of nature. And I made the Behemoth. And maybe you could say that's the terrible element of society. It's like, how dare you question me? And that's a perfectly reasonable objection. It's like, really, you're going to, doesn't matter what happens. You're going to question God, really? Well, so God objects to that. And then, and then you, 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 although Job, Jung believed that Job actually had the moral upper hand in that description because God behaved rather reprehensibly in having a bet with the devil. I mean, Jung wrote a book called Answer to Job, which is very much worth reading. It's, it's quite a profound piece of work. But then you also wove in into the question this idea of the ethical requirement to be good. Yeah. And that's, there's something in that that's unutterably deep because this is, this is right at the limit of my ability to understand things too, so it's speculative beyond belief. But it seems to me that we are thrown challenges and that, they're, that, and that in some sense those are best construed as tests of our ethical ability. So what Jung thought, his idea was something like this, that at the beginning of time, people were unconscious and that consciousness emerged with all of its catastrophes, consciousness of death, for example. And one way out of the burden of consciousness was to return to unconsciousness. You can do that with alcohol. You can do that by being dependent. You can do that by failing to grow up. You refuse the burden of consciousness by becoming unconscious again. But there's another way for it, which is to become even more conscious. So the idea would be, a little bit of consciousness is like an illness, but if you can expand that consciousness upwards enough, then it's something, it starts to become something that, it's, that is its own cure. And that partly what your goal is while you suffer through life is to heighten your consciousness to the point where everything gets integrated enough so that that's proper medication for the disease of self-consciousness. And Jung believed that that was really the, that was one of the ideas that ran through the entire well, the entire structure of Judeo-Christianity, although not, it wouldn't be limited to Judeo-Christianity. So it's, it's more consciousness rather than less. It's more attention. And I, I, think, I think there's something to that. And some of that... Mm. See, the other thing you see in psychotherapy, for example, is that when you're trying to lead people forward out of the darkness, let's say, um, out of anxiety and depression and despair and, and resentment and bitterness and anger and all of those things, catastrophic interactions with their family is that you get them to stop avoiding confronting the terrible things that are in front of them right so basically what you do instead of saying to them you know those terrible things that are happening just ignore those and 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 find some peace right get your mind away from it that isn't what you say you say turn around and look at them even more than you've been looking at them it's very paradoxical advice but of all the things that have been proven to aid people's recovery and movement towards mental health that's like at the top of the list voluntary confrontation with what you are afraid of or or what you despise even for that matter and so 
Jung had an axiom that he derived from the alchemists, which was insterquilinus invenitur, which meant, roughly meant, that which you most need will be found where you least want to look. Which is, yeah, well that's, that was also his explanation for why people weren't enlightened. Because you think, well, the California approach to enlightenment to speak, you know, kind of satirically is follow your bliss. It's like, well, that's easy. If that was the case, everyone would be enlightened. But the Jungian approach is, no, no, no. You do what's meaningful and, and pay attention, follow the truth, and it will take you to the worst place you can imagine. And then maybe there's some chance for enlightenment. Campbell somewhat revoked that. Uh, I follow your bliss ma uh, mantra, though, by saying he wish he'd said follow your blisters. You know, like that. Yeah. You should follow <laughs> is the pain. Yeah. And I, um, yeah. I didn't know he said that. Yeah, it's oh. cool, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. Wicked. Put that on the scoreboard. Oh, that's good. That's like, good. Uh, uh, like another thing that I, I know I've been thrown because you've said that I said something that you didn't know, and it's unraveled my entire <laughs> Weltanschauung. And now I've reached for a bit of German language to pull my way back in. Oh yeah, Herman Melville, he'll help me out. Like, so like, uh, I'm reading this Moby Dick, it smashed my head up, you know, like, and like, um, when he says in the, there's a, towards the end of the book, Ahab, when he's hanging out with uh, Pip and stuff, he's, and he's really losing it now, but maybe he's finding it too. There's a bit where he, he talks about will. Who is it that moves this arm, he says? Who is it that thinks these thoughts? If the mighty sun has no control over its movements, what control has Ahab over his thoughts? You know, he's talking about fate and destiny and these ideas again. Seem to me very potent, powerful themes. My, the position sure, and he struggles with a great whale, right? And that's, yeah. that's the dragon of the abyss. That's, that's Moby Dick. It's, it's, it's the hero against the dragon of the abyss. And he's obsessed with it, right? Well, he should be obsessed with it. It's, it's, it's what to be obsessed with is the dragon of the abyss. That's the oldest story of mankind, is that your proper obsession is the dragon of the abyss. That's where the gold is. Yes, that's where the gold is. Mm -hmm. Even um, though that's where things uh, are most terrifying. Also a bloody tragic ending, mm -hmm. except unless you take Ishmael as the protagonist, in mm -hmm. which case Ishmael survives and Ahab, you know, don't ruin it for anyone, dies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, um, but like, uh, right. So it's a tragedy. It's a tragic encounter with the dragon of chaos. He's a failed hero, fundamentally. There's two outcomes. He's a failed, yeah. and he's, yeah, he's lost that limb and stuff, mm -hmm. and I'm sure, yeah, sort of mm -hmm. uh, symbolic. Just, like, just like Captain Hook and the crocodile. Yeah, they have to have. Yeah, no, I love. For me, it's very exciting when I see these patterns of perennialism. Mm -hmm. for, for me, it is exciting because yeah. there's truth. So implicit in it is implicit in it is truth. And now that thing we were talking about a minute ago, where we where I got excited because I said follow your blisters. The thing I was going to say is like there's some sort of maxim I understand in Buddhism of like let it burn, let it burn, mm -hmm. let it burn. Like take away from me everything. Right, right. Oh, there's the idea is also there in Christianity. So there's an occult interpretation. There's Letters on Christ's cross, I-N-R-I, Jesus yeah, Christ, King that? of the Jews. It means Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, and it was put there by the Romans. But there's an occult interpretation in Latin, which I can't re re reproduce. But it means, through fire, all things are renewed. And one of, the, one of the deepest ideas of Christianity is that you should burn everything off that's part of you that isn't part of that thing that can die and be reborn. Like there's all sorts of baggage that you, people say that there's baggage that you're carrying. Everyone knows that it's dead wood. It's like that has to burn off, and that's a lot of that's way more of you than you think. Before we go back to the under the under the skin, check out the rebirth tour on russellbrand.com. I am in Sweden this Saturday, the seventeenth at the Waterfront Theatre with my Rebirth Tour. It's going to be fantastic. If you're in Sweden or near Sweden, if you're in Stockholm or near Stockholm, if you're in Stockport, 
go to russellbrand.com and get your tickets. The following Tuesday, I will be at Amsterdam in the IFAS Arena. Yeah, Arena. They're very big. You've got to sell those tickets, Russell. Come see me in Amsterdam. Rebirth. It's an amazing show. Themes such as the ones being discussed now, but delivered to you comedically and joyfully and in striking distance. Now it's time to return to Under the Skin with Jordan Peterson. Whilst you still haven't said whether or not you you believe in God, and I won't keep going on about it because I'm not one of them type of people. <laughs> like, it seems good, to me, good to know that. <laughs> yeah. So like, um, like, it seems to me that you revere truth, and it seems to me that you are interested in the truth in scripture and mythology. Now, then what this leads me to is something we touched upon briefly. It's about the role of power and the function of morality and ethics and, 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 and indeed simpler ideas, well terms if not ideas, such as compassion and mm -hmm. goodness. So when, like, you know, it's interesting to me that you've written sort of an accessible sort of self-help type book that's, you know, clean your room, stand up straight, stick your shoulders back, stuff that, you know, like I w would not query. The, my, the only thing that I feel like I would like to ask you about, because my, I don't know if I even have a constituency, but the people I find, you know, I find myself talking a lot to Muslim people, uh, young women, self-harming, eating disorders, yeah, sure. these kind of, you know, you're a clinical psychologist, so I imagine you have more, in, more access to that kind of information and those kind of experiences than I do. I have this sort of strong feeling that I am supposed to make myself available for the vulnerable, mm -hmm. for the powerless and for the voiceless. Mm -hmm. So That's a fine idea. This the is question the one. is, how do you do it? How do we do it? Because it's hard to do it. Huge bloody question. Sometimes mm -hmm. they don't want me interfering in their well, lives. Well, there is that. Majority of the time. Right. There are. certainly is that. Well, there's a, there's a maxim that's often applied by people who work in old age homes, which is never do anything for the residents that they can do themselves. Right? <laughs> they can't steal their own money and well. have sex <laughs> with their sleeping body. I'm a comedian. I'm a comedian. Very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I say things like that. It's paid off over the long run. Yeah, no. um, right, exactly. So, so isn't it... Like so it's hard. Like the thing, about, the thing about compassion is it's not sufficient to produce solutions. Compassion is an unbelievably useful emotion if you're dealing with six-month-old infants. What about because they're always right. Jeez, they're an arsehole. No, but like, a, like you know, like, but what That's I wanna... not very compassionate. <laughs> <laughs> you said it doesn't work. <laughs> no, but what about what I want to say is, like, I know you're saying all this thing about sort of the, the one of the is it one of the essential themes ideas about the Christ myth being, yep. you know, sort of burn away all that yeah. cannot be reborn but bloody hell mate in the actual language all he bangs on about is kindness kindness love love kindness mm. kindness love not love. in revelation hmm not in revelation he's a judge in revelation what and you still you're still taking that as what the books beyond the gospels you're still taking as the word of christ well i'm taking them as part of the entire corpus of the story mm. i mean the reason that jung thought revelation was appended to the bible was because the christ in the gospels was erred too, too much, in a sense, on the side of mercy and not enough on the side of judgment. Because here's, here's why. Is there's important. a technical There's a technical reason, though. It's like... We don't want a judgmental Jesus. <laughs> well, you don't have a choice. Because if you have an ideal, it's a judge. Like, you have an ideal. You, and there might be an ideal that you have of you. It's simultaneously your judge, because you fall short of it. I understand this, because uh, funny enough, I was talking to the fellow that taught me meditation yesterday, Bob Roff, so he's a student of the Maharishi, you know mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. He said that when the Maharishi was asked, what is the one principle, the one principle, he didn't say kindness or compassion mm -hmm. or anything like that, he said discernment. 
right. and discernment. You know, which path are we going to follow? That's Where is right. the attention going? Yeah. But that's judgment. That's I, why in Revelation, Christ d- divides the damned from the saved, and most are damned. It's discernment. And, and what that means in some sense is that there's a thousand, there's a hundred thousand ways to do things wrong and only one way to do them right. Or maybe only five ways of doing them right. But you know that in your own life is that the, 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 there's an infinite number of snares that you can tangle yourself up in. And to find that pathway where everything is balanced, that's very, that requires continual discernment and attention. And so you, you can't have an ideal without it being a judge. And you can't, you can't live properly without discernment. But that doesn't mean compassion and compassion isn't relevant. It doesn't mean that at all. I've got to ask you something that sort of occurs to me. See, like I, like you, have found myself in different types of controversial situations, various conflicts, and many, much of the time, it's because, uh, like Albert Mays was said, tyranny is the deliberate removal of nuance. Mm-hmm. People remove, right. and like, I didn't even say that. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good phrase. It's good shit, isn't it? Yeah, it's but, good. But like. The thing, right? The deliberate r- removal of nuance. nuance. Yeah, that's that's what makes it different than ignorance because ignorance, there's no nuance in ignorance, but it's excusable because you just don't know any better. Yeah. But when it's deliberate, that's a whole different story. I that's very nice. Who said that? Albert Mays was a filmmaker. He made like Grey Gardens. He made that beat. I did a documentary with him very briefly, and he uh, he made that Beatles movie when the Beatles first came to the states. He made Gimme Shelters. The Mays, oh, right. Mays was brother. They're like old guys now, brilliant documentarians. Mm-hmm, I can see mm-hmm, our crew here mm-hmm. nodding with approval. Uh, he invented much of the fly in the wall verite style that's informed subsequent documentary. Mm-hmm. Tyranny is the deliberate removal of nuance. I worked with him sort of briefly filming none other than President Donald Trump of all people but like one of the, the things that I wanted to talk about was um if I like this is the thing I don't like all of the I don't like though I agree and I, or I feel I don't know what you feel that, that you know that one of the the that neoliberalism ab- abandoned its allegiance to, and leftist politics has in a sense abandoned the working class mm-hmm. and I can understand their rage and but the feeling I personally had is when, if I sense that I'd said things, and, I'm, and I've done this so I know, that have offended women, which I, you know, when I was more, when I was a single person, I was promiscuous, and I know that, you know, the, sort of that caused me conflagration and conflict, uh, or when I've done things like, you know, in the spirit of humour that have had like a kickback, I've always felt bad if I feel like I've offended people that I would, I would regard or culturally are regarded as vulnerable. Yeah. So, like, around the, uh, like, I, when we make the conversation about the use of language, tyranny and oppression in free speech, well, you mm-hmm. know, obviously I agree with you, but the, but I do take from, you know, the gospel version of Christ, the idea that kindness, love, we can't, you know, we have to continue to find resources for ongoing, you know, and we'll continue to fail, but we must continue to be loving. So yeah. what I'm, my question is, is if you, you have found yourself in a position where I kind of think some people are using you to sort of say, fuck you women or fuck mm-hmm. you transgender people. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think I would want to sort of go, oh, that's not my bag. Mm-hmm. Like, so well, where do you stand on that? Well, Jordan? I think, I think that, First of all, we'll, we'll go to the most fundamental part of the question, which is this issue about love. And like, one of the things I've thought about a fair bit is the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. And as far as I can tell, it's it's a it's basically a two part it's two part wisdom. The first is that you should aim at the highest good that you can imagine, and that would be a good that includes everyone, right? So. 
if I wanted what was good for you, say, if I genuinely wanted it, I'd want it in a way that was good for you now and good in the long run and good for you and your family and your community and maybe good for me too. You know, you could conceive of that as the desire. And I think that's a good definition of love, is that you actually want the best, you want the best possible outcome. And in the Gospels, of course, that's extended even to your enemies. Yes. Right? Is that, okay, if we're going to have things good, let's have it good enough for even the people that set themselves up against me. Because if the world was running properly, things would be good for them too. And that would be better. And it seems to me that that's a very good way of looking at things. It's a difficult way of looking at things. And then the second part of the Sermon on the Mount is something like, having established that as your aim which is no easy thing, by the way, right? Because you have to be pretty clear-headed and single-minded to actually want that to be your aim. Then you can concentrate on the day and you can try telling the truth. And you can ally. So there's truth and love that are allied together. Truth, love, and attention. It's something like that that are all allied together. Um, with regards to transgressing against the vulnerable, I don't think that that is what I've done. I think that people have claimed that, but I don't think there's any evidence for it. I mean, first of all, I know absolutely that I have brought perhaps thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people, but certainly thousands of people away from identification with the right, because they write me all the time and tell me that. I've received about 30,000 letters specifically from people who've been watching my YouTube videos since August, and 25,000 of them or so, we've tried to count, are from people who said that they were in very dark places and that their lives are much better, much oriented towards truth and responsibility and away from political ideology, mostly on the right, right? That they were attracted on the right because I have more people like that write me than people who say that I, say, rescued them from the hell holes of the radical left. Um, I think that's more of a historical accident in some, in some, in some wise than, than anything else. But also with the transgender issue, more specifically, I've received now at least 40 letters from transgender people. And the only one of them was critical. And it wasn't that critical. The rest of them all said, um, we never signed up to be poster boy of the year for the radical left. And it's, no, it's been no picnic, believe me. All that's happened is that our lives have become much more difficult. And I believe that. And I don't see that... I think one of the mistakes that the, the radical left makes, and this is part and parcel of their flirtation with identity politics, is that they fall all over themselves to believe that if a person identifies as a minority, then they immediately have the right to speak for all the people who are in that minority. And that's a, a claim that I reject completely. I mean, first of all, there is no transgender community. It's not a community. Because a community is constantly interacting and networking and has a shared purpose and all that. Transgender people are just as diverse as any other people. It's like saying, well, there's, there's no real black community. There's not homogenous political viewpoints across the black population. I suppose so, that I agree to a point that these taxonomies are necessarily externally imposed because how would they be intrinsically experienced? I understand that. But also it seems to me that there is a thing called the experience of being an African-American and you can put into that high prison populations for young males, mm -hmm. lack of educational opportunity or work opportunity. The data mm -hmm. is available for that. So while community may be an incorrect term, literally, yeah. 
there is a, there is a strata that seem to be underserved. And another concern yeah. I would have about some of the uh, the, the repurposing, you know, as far as, far as we know so far, of, of much of your oratory and online work seems to me that it supports the powerful. It supports hegemony. I would mm -hmm. I don't agree that things are as simple as white men are in a position of power, like, you know, like, you know, like, but it, I'm only interested in who is able to affect change, who is able to influence, who can you not attack in public, what is possible, like, who is being controlled? That's yep. what interests okay. me. Okay. So, like, you know, transnational corporations, yep. economic elites, you know, like, sort of, and how are they served by what I say or by what right. you say? Okay, so that, that's a reference back to the existence of inequality. We agreed earlier yes, that inequality, inequality is a big that. problem. Oh, yeah, it's But you're saying it's, it's natural. Which clearly well, it's not. You cannot lay it at the feet of capitalism. That's absolutely clear. That and the fact that it's natural it doesn't, make it, helping, though, doesn't make it desirable. Hey. What's that? Capitalism doesn't help. There's so many like you know Marx's critique. What yeah. I understand about it, it like is that capitalism is built on limitless growth from finite uh, from finite resources, mm -hmm. and also capitalism will always always be redirected and criminally misused and and the sort of the economics of our time it sort of for me is demonstrable i know sort of there are people that say oh no people are richer now than ever but mm -hmm. like you know staying in la for a while and there's ninety thousand homeless people in the greater mm -hmm. la area it seems like some sort of like the apocalypse is well, creeping pe in people are richer than they ever have been but the extreme extremes of inequality are high too mm. and there's some evidence that there's some evidence well here here's an example of how these things might work so Imagine that, peop that people are getting richer. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But here's here's like we got more stuff. Even yeah. though, like well, I'm sure they, you would agree not that starving that that's one. Not starving, that's good. Like obesity is a bigger problem in the world now than, than starvation. starvation. Right, that's a big deal. That's a big yeah. plus. But here's in what, a way, it still it implies that people are being underserved by the by their operating oh, systems. Are. Oh, but there's no doubt about that. And it still I mean, infers inequality also. Oh yes. Well, well, first of all. There's no doubt that any social system has a tyrannical and arbitrary aspect. I mean, that's an archetypal trait. Any. Right, any, of course. And even even well-functioning systems have a tyrannical aspect. Part, not mostly, or at least merely, because they them, require conformity. Uh, Native Americans who you're down with? Not Native Americans, Native Canadians. Yeah. The, the qua 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 qua. Yeah. <laughs> like them yeah. guys. Like, how's their social system set up? Oh, it's a catastrophe. Go on. Oh, well, I mean, it, it's a catastrophe for all sorts of reasons. I mean, <laughs> some of it... Yeah, it is. It is. It's, 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 the, the situation is very catastrophic. What it's partly mean? because, well, the reserve system was set up in Canada, and it had a possibility of working when there was a possibility that small communities could work economically. But small communities don't work economically anymore. Like if you go through Saskatchewan, for, for example, a central province in Canada, in the 1960s, there were thousands and thousands of small towns Mostly Caucasian. But that I'd is say. because it, of they're done. That's capitalism, though. No, it's not. Oh, it's it's on. deeper than that. It's the same problem. Well, here's it might be deeper than it, but in its current form, it is capitalism. Because I would agree that what is capitalism a manifestation of greed. Like, well, you it's could the say. same. Well, it's the same thing that. But the same thing has happened all over the world. Like urbanization is taking place at a tremendously rapid rate. It doesn't matter what the culture is or the form of government. So it's, you think that the politics is happening at a lower level? The phenomenology that's uh, where the dis where the that's significant is ha is ha is a bigger tide, we, uh, and within we, it, political systems are just flowing about. Oh, but that doesn't absolutely. mean we should dismantle the ones we have in search of fairer, more just. Better well, ones, particularly if, could, if they're empirically not if working. If we could come up with a way to reliably flatten inequality, that would be a good thing. 
But the empirical evidence suggests, so there's a bunch of things, it, it suggests, first of all, if you look at the, at the attempts to alleviate inequality over the last 200 years, whether there were left-wing governments in power or right-wing governments in power mm. made absolutely no difference whatsoever to the degree of inequality. The only things that have been reliably demonstrated to flatten out inequality are catastrophes. Wars, revolutions, epidemics. Um, there's one other. War, revolution, epidemics. Well, It's going to be some was, kind of oh, horseman. Now, yeah, it's, that's right. It's another horseman. I can't remember which it is. But, but the, the, price of, the price of radical... Um, Redistribution seems to it's be tremendous death. Yeah, there, and no one has come up with. Do you a think stable that's because of how solution? power functions? Because, like you know, in an unequal system, yeah. whilst there are many people that are suffering, there are some people that are benefiting. I'm in a tier that benefits yes. from, from the current economic situation. Um, I drive nice car. I yeah. have nice house. I go where I want. Well, let's look at that for a minute. Like. If you think about how that happened in your life, I, I bet I can tell you how it happened. Go on. Well, I mean, this isn't a personal account, but well, you, it better be. You had success. <laughs> I'm not you interested. had success in one dimension, right? High success. But because you were successful in that dimension, all sorts of opportunities came your way. Like my suspicions are that where you're sitting now, you have more opportunities than you can deal with. Hmm, is, yeah. it, is that correct? Yeah, 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 right. There are well, opportunities. Right, exactly. Well, there, see, this is part of what seems to drive inequality: is that as you get successful, the opportunities that come your way start to multiply, and they don't multiply linearly, they multiply exponentially. And so when you start moving up, you start moving up faster and faster and faster and faster. And then you'll hit a point where you have so many opportunities that you don't even know what to do with them. And so it's a nonlinear improvement. But the, the, the downside of that is, and you might have had periods in your life where, that were like this too, where let's say you start to get depressed, and then you start to drink because you're depressed. And then you start to isolate yourself because you're drinking and you're depressed. And because you're drunk and depressed, then your friends start to abandon you. And then you lose your job. It's like, you're not going downhill in a straight line. You're going downhill faster and faster and faster until you fall off a cliff. And that seems to be how the world works. It's like there's a center point. It's unstable. Things improve, then they improve exponentially. And things fall, and then they fall off exponentially. And that seems to be what's driving inequality. You start to succeed. And the probability that you'll continue to succeed starts to expand. Mm. And, so, and we don't know how to control that. And well, here, here's some other examples of it, though, because I said you couldn't lay it at the feet of capitalism. The same thing happens to cities. A small proportion of the cities get all the people. So some cities grow like mad and others fail catastrophically, like, like Detroit. It, it, it applies to the mass of stars. So there's a very few stars in the, in the Milky Way that have most of the matter. Hmm. So... It applies to the height of trees in the in the jungle, right? It, and you think if things are apl applicable yep. in cosmology and in biology, yep. the way that they are uh, uh, their application politically and sociologically becomes less relevant because you see these phenomena as being broader well, than I don't, I don't media. Think, I don't think it's right I don't think human it's, interaction. I don't think it's less relevant. I just see. I don't think the left wingers are pessimistic enough about the problem. They say inequality is a problem. It's, yeah, yeah, inequality is a problem. Like, it's, it's a terrible problem. But then they say, well, it's probably a function of our political and economic systems, and we could fix those. It's like, no, it's not a function of our political and economic systems. Or if it is, it's at such a deep level that we don't know what drives it, and we certainly don't know how to control it. Like, 
The so, but does that not mean, Jordan, that would you then reject any attempt to alter mm. systems in favour of fairness? Because it, it seems to me that the focus is on, like, and as it would be for a clinical psychologist, mm -hmm. individual change. Now, part of my personal experience is without individual change, social change is sort of irrelevant. And many well, okay, great but, gurus but would you say... Answered, you answered it right then and there. It's yes. like, because, because I am concerned with inequality, say, and with social instability. And, I, and I've thought about it for a long time. I knew that the left-wing approaches tended to fail catastrophically. And the right wing, of course, isn't particularly concerned with inequality, so that's so irrelevant. So left wing fails and the right wing don't care. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's fundamental. So we need to they find... also don't see the danger sufficiently. And the right wing also tends to think that the spoils go to who deserves them. Yeah. And that's kind of true, but it's not completely true. So that's that's part of that. No, because we're not all because of course, and what like a, a from a, a leftist perspective would be that we're not starting with, yeah, from right. a level playing field. Uh, well, and the system isn't perfect at selecting. And this is why I think a spiritual solution, uh, but something that is uh, beneath or beyond material, is the only way that true progress is likely to be achieved. I was thinking of this something that you said before about when we were talking briefly about kindness and compassion, and it occurs to me and. I'm sure very simplistic, but the heroism itself, uh, by which I mean sacrifice, mm -hmm. the willingness to sacrifice yourself for a greater idea, uh, what excites me about that idea, and I, and I believe why the phenomena is so loaded, is if someone is willing to die for something, it's that they believe it's bigger than them, or in fact that themselves, their self, is not the truest thing, that there is something greater. If I would give my life for another person, it's almost an acknowledgement of oneness, mm -hmm. the temporalness of the individuated self mm -hmm. and we all work so hard to achieve individuation and I'm sure much of your work as a clinical psychologist is guiding people towards it but mm -hmm. for me it's just a, a, a temporary resting place because having had the kind of experiences of personal humiliation annihilation success failure decimation like you know all of these things that what, what I've been led to and what I continue to struggle with is how do I how do I serve how am I of service well, how do but, I help see, people I think, I think that that's that is the solution to the problem it's like I don't think the solution to the problem of inequality is sociological I think it's psychological I mean partly what I'm trying Why, because to it's closer to essence because it's more essential or because Why? a society has to be a reflection of individual psyches or collective psyches why is it I think, psychological I think the temptation the temptation towards resentment and destruction that's associated with sociological approaches to inequality is too great and that as a consequence those those movements tend inexorably to become corrupt and destructive because I think Orwell put his finger on it when he said that middle-class socialists don't like the poor they just hate the rich mm. and that hatred I think that hatred gets the upper hand in sociological movements I think that the best approach to ameliorating inequalities to strengthen the individual. I mean, and that's, and that's what I've concentrated on doing. Like we have this program, uh, the self-authoring suite, and there's a component of that that helps people write an autobiography and another component that helps them write an analysis of their personality and another component that helps them write out a plan for the future. And we've used that, we've studied the effect of having people write out a detailed plan for their future. And, and it's a proper plan. It's like, okay, look, you. You get to have what you want three to five years down the road. You get to have the friends you want. You get to have the family you want. You get to have the career you want, the education. You get, you get to take care of yourself properly. You get to withstand the temptations of drug and alcohol abuse and other sorts of impulsive pleasures. You get to make productive and meaningful use of your time. Okay, what does that look like for you? Write it out. What does it look like? Just, you need a vision. 
And then you need another vision of how terrible things could be if you let all your bad habits get the upper hand. Mm. And we've had people do that in an experimental situation. And mostly they were college students. And the consequences of that, there were two consequences. One was general, which was that university students were about 30% more likely to stay in university and got grades that were, were about 25% better. This is a walloping effect. But even more interestingly, and this is the coolest thing I think that we ever discovered as in, our, in, in our psychological research, we did this research in Holland at the, um, uh, at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, at the Rotterdam School of Management, and we ran business students through the future authoring program for multiple years, so several thousands of them. And we stratified them by gender and ethnicity. Pretty, a pretty rough cut. Men, women, and then... Dutch nationals and non-Western ethnic minorities. Okay, and so the, the performance was like this. The Dutch women were at the top, then the Dutch men, then the, then the non-Western ethnic minority women, then the non-Western ethnic minority men. And they were behind the Dutch women by a... By a, by a they, they showed about an 80% decrement in performance. Really quite catastrophic. Two years after they did the future authoring program, they were ahead of the Dutch women. It just blew us away because it was, an, it was a perfect indication of the fact that you can use a psychological intervention to ameliorate what looks like a sociological problem. And so I think the right, see, I think the right solution, and this is what I've been saying over and over in my, my lectures and in this book, 12 Rules for Life, and this is why I think it's become so popular. I said, look, you're right. You were right. You said earlier in, in the last question, well, you can't ignore the group classification problem. You know, there's a black experience, there's a Latino experience, there's a female experience. It's like, yeah, that's true. But you have to decide what level of analysis you're going to make primary. And I think the primary level of analysis is the individual and the psychological, rather than the group and the sociological. And I think if you put the individual level first, and you, then you alluded to that, because you know, it, was, it was like an intuition that you were bringing forward, which was your intuition has been that the right level of progress is made at the level of the individual. And I think that's true. I thought that's the only level where I have personal authority. Well, only... right. And also personal responsibility. Because the, here's the thing. Like, here's the rule. How about this? Don't recommend any changes that you wouldn't suffer for if they failed. How's that? And that's the problem with large-scale political action. It's like, well, here's how we should change things. It's like, well, they change them as well. It fails doesn't bother me, it doesn't hurt me, I'm not involved in it. It's like, you should be careful when you try to change things to make sure you suffer for your own stupidity. Uh, of course, of course, Jordan, but that, that also plays into the hands of conservatism because, you know, when you said like that left-wing change tends to be sort of potentially destructive, yep. you know, these, of course, these are... Well, not, 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 not just left-wing change. Yes, There's exactly. right-wing radicals too. And even not... Yeah, and also there is sort of conventional politics and the ecological impact that it has, the inequality, which are like, whilst you're saying, you continue to say that the the problem of inequality is an anthropological, uh, biological, cosmological, physical, yeah, physical right. problem. It's, it's, a, it's a really deep problem. It's, it's a, a real deep, deep problem. problem. And for me, yeah. whenever you get near a problem that has that level of profundity or ubiquity, the solution can only be spiritual. We have to access the transcendent in some way to look for solutions. And although that sounds a so, little well, So why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? I mean, I'm not disputing that, but you obviously believe that. I do believe why? this. What, what drove you to that? Conclusion. I've been driven to this conclusion by the experiences of personal failure and personal limitation. 
by the failure of individuation, by the failure of, of my own grandiosity, the failure of my own ego, the failure of fame and power and money and sex and drugs, the, the inability of them to reach me in the belly of the beast, deep, deep, deep down where the Leviathan is. This, these cures, this alchemy was redundant. And what I have realized, I think the, the spiritual journey for me, the hero's journey, and like, you know, I'm using reference points in which you are a, an expert and a professor, is that, that the death of the small S self and the realization of the capital S self means become a servant, become a servant of good. Use your abilities to generate the maximum amount of love, the maximum amount of kindness and compassion, and to be alert to where I can be of most use. Now, for me, that can be incredibly limited because I'm still a deeply egotistical, narcissistic, flawed, failing individual. But what my focus is, what my intention is, what I'm trying to learn to become in this journey of self-realization is a compassionate and loving man. And I but want you to also be... said, you added something to that too, oh, though. Yeah. Well, you added useful to that. Yeah, useful is not right. well, useful, useful you're finished. Well, that's it. So the best definition of Christian compassion that I ever read was useful and generous. Mm. Right. Useful and generous. Mm. Right. And so I would say the conservatives and air the conservatives promote the useful end of the distribution and the liberals pr promote the generous end. But and those I, things need to be brought together. And I would say, and given that the, you yourself have said the problem, for example, of hierarchies exists on a far broader spectrum than the political, that these, the, the narrow, like when you were saying, like on the whole left-wing Democrat or Republican governments or left-wing right-wing governments have produced a similar about amount of... the same of in, amount of inequality. For it's me, pretty that's, sad. It's, I'm not happy about this. It's and it a also, sad thing. Doesn't it suggest also, Jordan, that the range of solution that we're being offered is too limited? Right. Yes, it, 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 I, I don't think it suggests that I think it indicates that yes and this is why I think that the problem of inequality has to be taken with more seriousness than it's being taken and the role of the individual and obviously you would focus on this as a clinical psychologist is paramount because like because I kind of believe when I think about sort of a sort of a fluctuating vivid grotesque right-wing phenomena such as Donald Trump. I don't blame people for voting for Donald Trump. I understand why people feel furious. I understand the emotion of anger and rage. And I suspect that all all that plays out in the zoetrope of the material realm is a reflection of the activity in the psyche, activity in the emotion. How could it be otherwise? Except for, of course, you say it occurs in lobsters and nature. So that suggests it's even more profound, deeper, more essential Or that the psyche is deeper than just human. Right, the psyche is all, right. the universal conscious and unconscious mind. So I suppose what, I, I suppose what I'm thinking is, how can, what my interest is, is how can well, I let me manifest ask you, benefits? Well, let me ask you a question. Go on. What do you think that you've done in the last year that's good? They are mostly small things. Okay, well... Acts of kindness. Well, you have a daughter. You have a good relationship with her. So that seems to be a good thing. That's been beautiful. That's been... Sort of, in fact, that is hugely significant. My uh, newfound ability to live a, what one might refer to as an ordinary domestic life. My willingness to let go of other people's perception of me. These things have all been hugely significant. And my sort of... Mm, I would say my dedication to sort of self-improvement in areas that could still be regarded as selfish is one thing. Still an improvement... 
to sort of take exercise to look after myself. I'm like drug and alcohol free for like 15 years. And it's at this point that the epiphanies are beginning to sort of coalesce. The things that, that I feel are perhaps most important is to let go of self-centeredness. When I, when I conduct myself and when I'm not continually thinking, what can I get? When I don't look at the outside world as a resource, when I don't think, what can that person give me? What can they give me? When I think right. instead... Well, I have a chapter on that in 12 Rules for ah. Life, right? It's called, it says, do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. And mm. to, to, to view the world as a, a place of resources that can be delivered to you, it's in some sense to be expedient, is to take the short-term, it's to take the approach of short-term gratification, something like that. Yes. It's self-centered. It's materialistic but, too. Well, it is materialistic, but it's also, it's also, it's not optimal and there, it's, it's not wise. And the reason for that is, is that it actually turns out, like if we're going to have, a, if we had a continuing relationship, I would want to try to do a little bit more for you than you do for me. And I could do that even purely selfishly, say, because if I did a little bit more for you than you did for me, you would want to keep interacting with me. How so, does that... All right, so because me and you, I think, get on relatively easy. We've found a frequency to communicate on. But say someone like the woman... We're both high in openness. High in openness mm -hmm. is a good service. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the woman on Channel 4 News who seemed more agitated and stuff? Like, do, like, me... Well, some... we were actually having a conversation. We're trying to have a conversation that's oriented towards discovering something. And you think she had a sort of a series of linear bond marks and epithets and she was just dropping them regardless yes. of what came oh, back? Oh, definitely. That's exactly what happened. Except once. There was once... Oh, where... when you went, you're being mean to me and she was a bit, like, yeah. confounded. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I complimented but her on her ability to put people issue. on the spot when she said that she that was you. the wrong thing to do. You know, yes, so... yes. Now, do uh, you're an academic, you're a, a clinical psychologist, but in this moment, do you not feel, and I, like it's a question I could, you could easily pose to me, feel like, right, I just want this, <laughs> like that's the person that's been in front of you, that's the world in that moment. I don't think you were particularly hostile to that person, may I say, but like, uh, do you not feel like in, in that moment, it, uh, it would be of value and of service to nurture that person? You know, yes. Well, well, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, very smart friend of mine. His name is Wayne Moretzky. Um, he's, quite the, he's quite the character, Wayne. But he, he watched, and I've had people watch what I've been doing for the last 18 months, lots of people, and they report on what they think about what I'm doing. And so I asked Wayne about the interview, and um, you know, he was happy about the fact that I conducted myself with a certain amount of calm and detachment. And, but he did say something very interesting. There was this... There was, the, the kind of the culmination of that interview was where Kathy was challenging me about my right to say things that might offend someone. And I said, well, I said, essentially, look, you've based your whole career and this interview on that right, you know, and congratulations to you. That's what you should be doing. And then she was taken aback by that. And I said, gotcha. And she, she you know, she was sort of flustered and she said, well, yeah, you did. And Wayne said, you know, you could have, instead of saying gotcha at that point, you could have taken the opportunity there to, to expand on that opening and to try to have a genuine yes, yes, conversation. Yeah, I'd right, like exactly. To Very smart. You, Very along smart. Along with Wayne for not doing that yeah. Christian thing. Yeah, yeah. In well, that moment. Okay, so I thought, and I, I thought about that a lot. I thought, well, that I think there were limitations in the format. 
Like by that time, yeah. we were about 25 minutes into the interview, you know, so it was coming, it was coming close to an end. And you know, sometimes being funny, because I think it was reasonably funny, it was reasonably witty, sometimes that's okay too. Well, that's why comedians are useful, you know, yes, because yes. they say funny things. But, but... <laughs> this just in. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> well, hopefully they do, and hopefully they can get away with it, right? And, and I think that that's, that that's often an extremely effective conversational maneuver because you actually as a matter of fact you said something about comedy there's another thing i'm just throwing a few things at you now because look you know the reason i do this because i started doing a degree at a university called soas called religion in global politics and one of the main things they taught taught me there or one of the things i've intrigued me is the first thing they show you is this bit of uh, borgia this bit of literature by borgia where some story i can't remember it called the chinese Emperor's system of taxonomy, where he show and the stories about. Yes. I love that gear. Yes, and I, like, and it's sort of, and, and part of the course is they talk about who gets to determine what words like natural or power, or you know, who gets to determine how those terms are allocated. I right. dig that. Who gets to determine what's deemed religious? What's well, that's deemed why political. I objected to Bill C sixteen because I wasn't going to let the radical left just decide the linguistic playing ground. And that's what they were trying to do. You see, their, their rationale was, we're on the side of transgender people. I thought, no, you're not. You're trying to control the linguistic territory. In a sense, like, this is where this conversation is, uh, it, it, it parallels the conversation I had with Sam Harris. Because with Sam Harris, what I found myself saying is that, why are you so worried about this one particular issue of zealousness or extremism when it seems that power is actually situated elsewhere? seems to me that, you know, and whilst, you know, in that instance, I suppose because that was the instance that came your way, uh, you, you, as you term it, the radical left, you know, imposition of certain rules around language that you have Yeah, well, that was to. the reason for me. Plus but, the fact but that... But broadly speaking, but you have also continued to furrow or plough that furrow, haven't you? You have continued down a sort of a line that seems like teleologically sensible with what happened there, like it mm. continues to be like, you know, I know what you say, like, I agreed with your analysis of the word provo provocateur. If you don't, mm. you know, if a person is provoked, if they're not provoked, you're not a provocateur. Mm -hmm. So it's a mm -hmm. difficult uh, label to apply to anybody. But it seems to me that, you know, when some, when people say, you know, young males are particularly sort of uh, attracted to your work. Yeah. I, I do see that this is a time where males need guidance and like mm. where there isn't the kind of elders are, Elders, customs, initiations, roots to masculinity are in short supply. Right. I can see that there's a, a real value in that. Mm -hmm. But I also feel that it, in this time of social contention, identity politics being part of it, co and conflict, that ideas that promote unity mm -hmm. and the immolation of those kind of boundaries, it feels to me would be particularly and especially valuable. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, again, but I think the right way to do that is to concentrate on the individual. And so, so let me answer that in two ways. The first thing, the first issue is that it isn't self-evident that the reason that my, what I've been talking about has been attractive to young men, that might be uh, uh, like a fluke. <laughs> and it might be a fluke because almost everybody who watches YouTube is male. Yeah. So like, if I look at my YouTube audience, it's 80% male. But that's true of YouTube audiences in general. So it's just a so, typical YouTube well, audience. Well, right, right. And so what's is happening... Is that your intuition? Well, no, I, I think it's, more, compli I think it's more complicated than that. But I do know that since my book has come out, I've, I've been watching the, the demographics of my, of my public audience, that more and more and more women are coming out. So it's now to about 65, 35 from 80, 20. And more and more older people are coming out too. So I think 
a fair bit of it was a consequence of the fact that most of my exposure and was to the YouTube audience, which happens to be mostly men. Now, I do also think that there is a particular crisis with regards to what might be described as proper pathways to masculinity. I also think that's at play. So I think there's two factors. But I also, I don't think, and Kathy Newman kind of went after me about this, you know, she said, well, you know, if you're directing your message towards young men, which I wasn't, but assuming that's the case, isn't that divisive? And I would say, well, I don't think it is divisive because first of all, the masculine in women also needs to be developed. It's very, very important. And the people who are the enemies of the masculine in men are also the enemies of the masculine in women. So if you overprotect your sons, let's say, you don't want to, you don't want to, you want to, uh, you, you overprotect them in part and, and, and weaken them because you're afraid of their masculine energy. You're going to do exactly the same thing I to agree. your daughters. So that that so 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 that that the, that female a female child would similarly be disempowered. Oh, definitely, because you know the thing is, and this is another thing, is that I am a psychometrician. That's technically my my job, and we study Metrics. the the measurement. Well, and like it's a truism of psychometrics that men and women are more the same than they are different. You know, it's mm. funny because I've been sort of positioned as someone who is constantly on about the differences between men and women. But men and women are more the same than they are different. And what that means is that the development of masculinity in women, perhaps it's not as important as the development of masculinity in men, but it's damn important. It's like it's a close second. Mm. And so if people are pushing down masculinity as a virtuous mode of being, then it, it has a detrimental effect on both on sexes. Everybody. I agree with this. Uh, but uh, but you would say that, that determinately that, and biologically that there is a thing that is masculinity and that thing masculinity is present in both females oh, de and males de definitely. Um, but I, I think again one of the uh, one of the challenges that this argument or the, the, appears to be built around is a sort of hierarchy around those traits masculinity being synonymous for example with power. Oh, here's the mm -hmm. thing I wanted to bloody ask you. Mm -hmm. Check this out, because it was a bit, I said it on a YouTube video on my own the other day, and I thought, I wonder if this stands up to scrutiny. Let's give it a bit. Check this. I said, like, in Sweden, they're banning sexually provocative advertising. You know, it's the kind of thing you hear a lot about, like the yep. objectification of women. And I said, of course, I support that because as a male being subjected to lots of uh, sexualized images of women has, to a degree, affected, uh, you know, particularly when I was younger, my... Well, the logical ex conclusion of that is pornography, right? Yes. And that doesn't really seem to be a good thing. It doesn't seem so, to be no, a good thing, yeah. Really I don't look at pornography anymore. Like, but pornography, I think, is, yeah, very corrupting, corrosive mm -hmm. influence, or, you know, for, for me personally, it's not mm -hmm. something I want to be involved in. I said this, check this. Yeah. I goes, um, I feel the use of the female in advertising and commodification in general is the, is the perverted desire to worship the feminine. Mm -hmm. The negated and neglected feminine has found its expression through consumerism and commerce because it is not being properly honoured socially. What do you reckon? I, 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 I made I, it up. I would have to think that. I'd have to think about that a long Maybe time. I'm... I would have to think about that a long time. It's a good idea, though, isn't answer it? it? It's it's an idea worth worth thinking about for a while. Like if there are essential, if we have essential yearnings, mm -hmm. if we have like you know, like e.g., if we, if the you know like the in sort of 
if in indigenous cultures we would have deities to represent gender or certain energies that are subtler than gender, if there is yeah. a sense that socially those energies are not being expressed or honored, as you have implied with yeah, male this, oh, pathways. That's, right. that's definitely the case. So one of the things that I've often thought about ideologies is that they're, they're like parasites on religious structures. And if you're thinking that the, the movement of feminine imagery up into the consumerist world is an analog or is, is at least in partial part, part a consequence of not having a symbolic place where that attraction can be expressed. I think that's probably right. It's like, it's like in the United States is the, the first family tends to be turned into king and queen. Yeah. Because there's no place for that symbolic projection. Yeah, the template requires it. Yeah. I heard once an analysis of the Soviet Union after the revolution that it mimicked the monarchic mm -hmm. tyranny that preceded it just in a, a different Format, right? And it right. seems, yeah, that that, that sort of certain well, they energies. have their holy trinity, even, right? Yes, Mao, Marx, Lenin, Amazing. or Mao, Marx, Stalin, depending on the trinity. But and and some would argue that we you know sort of like that Christianity couldn't take hold in Latin America until they embraced the pantheonism of the saints and found and the figure of uh, the Virgin until they like they you know that in certain cultures the the Virgin had to be elevated because there mm. isn't a place in the Father, Son, Holy Ghost for the divine feminine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's a Jungian idea, definitely. Yeah, oh, is it? That, yeah. oh yeah, definitely. That, that's, that's an original idea of Jung's, is that, cool. that the, the Trinity is missing a quartile, and sometimes that quartile is filled by the figure of the devil, and sometimes it's filled by the figure of the woman. So it's like, it's like the houses in, in Harry Potter. Right, there's three good houses in Slytherin. Is in the, uh, or in the yeah, and is in the bottom quadrant. It's a it's a reflection of the same kind of Mandela structure. That's pretty cool. So, it's very cool. You yes. have to. It's very cool. Have a place at the table for the serpent. You have mm -hmm. to have a place. Hmm. Mm -hmm. what that's about, what happens in Sleeping Beauty, right? In the Disney movie, they, they don't let in that. They don't crone. Let, they, that's right. They they don't invite her to the christening, and so their daughter ends up unconscious. Mm. Right, they don't let the terrible mother come to the party, so How, the daughter ends up unconscious. In our domestic, normal, everyday, quotidian lives, what is the terrible mother? How does that help us? Overprotection. Overprotection. Don't overprotect the baby. Let no. it fall over a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's right. You do do the least amount possible for your children. It's something like that. That's not neglect. It's nothing like that. It's like the old age home adage. You know, look, I've seen this lots of times with parents. It's like maybe you have to get your kid dressed up to go out. Well, it takes a long time if you let your kid do it. You know, mm. it's a lot faster just to do it. It's a lot faster not to have them set the table. It's a lot faster to do things for them. Plus, there's, there's also, and, and this is part of the devouring mother archetype, is like, if you've devoted your life to a child, perhaps more than you should have, let's say, then it's very difficult to let the child go. Because, yes. like, what, what's there left for you? And so there's this terrible temptation to play, well, I'll do everything for you but you never leave me. And then for the child to say, yeah, that's right. That's exactly the right face to make for that. That's a very terrible thing. And you see that again in Disney's Sleeping Beauty, where Maleficent has the heroic prince in the dungeon and is laughing at him. Right? She's not going to let him go until he's ancient. And that's, and that's a consequence. Where else do we a... see the devouring mother? What are some good pop cultural examples of the oh, devouring mother? Oh, you see it in mother? Disney movies all the time. I've always got one. Um, in, in, the little, in The Little Mermaid, oh. Ursula is oh, the yeah. devouring mother. The devouring mother shows up all the time. She's the witch. She's the swamp dweller. She's the she's the evil queen in Snow White. What's the counterpoint? The fairy godmother. Yeah, who... fairy godmother's one. Yeah, that's the positive feminine, mm. and that that happened. That that archetype manifests itself all over the place as well. The 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 fairy godmother is a good one, and you see in 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 uh, in Sleeping Beauty, there's three of them, the three little fairies that take care of the princess in the forest. 
They're, they're the archetype of the positive feminine. So, so you always see, one of the things that distinguishes a religious viewpoint from an ideological viewpoint is that there's always a representation of nature or the unknown. Always. You need one. And if it's That's a religious Holy Ghost representation... Is it? hmm? Holy Ghost in Christianity is the um, unknown? Well, in, in Christianity, I'd have to think about that for a minute. Part, partly it's the Virgin Mother. It's mostly a positive representation in Christianity. So, and that, that would be the, the representation of the benevolence of nature. It's something like that. So that's the unknown. But in a religious representation, you have the positive, and the, the positive and the negative aspect of the feminine. That's also the unknown. You have the positive and negative aspect of the, of the, of the state. That's the wise king and the, and the devouring king. And you have the positive and negative representation of the individual. And the reason it's religious in some sense, it's hard to explain why in a very short period of time, but a religious viewpoint always gives you a balanced viewpoint. That's what makes it religious. It's like there's a positive element that's intensely positive, but there's the negative counterpart. And there's a positive... So let me give you an example here. Um, I can give you an example of how this plays out archetypally. The frontier myth that settled the West was essentially heroic individual, positive, bringing uh, the benefits of order and culture, positive, to the desolate, barren wastelands of the West. Okay, so it's positive individual, positive culture, negative nature. Okay, so that's an ideology, but it's a powerful story because it's true. Heroic individual, bearer of culture, barren, desolate wasteland. It's true. But one of the things that eventually generated was a counter-narrative, and that, because it was only half the story, that counter-narrative was the environmental narrative, yes. which was rapacious individual bringing, pillaging society into benevolent nature. And they had to recast the indigenous people that lived on those land masses as savages, not entitled yeah, to the, the, the same the, rights yeah, as well, there the were, heroic well, individual. Well, and there were, two, there were actually two competing tendencies in, in the Western mind. One was the noble savage, so that was the person. Exactly. And the other was denizen, you know, barbaric denizen of the uninhabited wasteland. So those are but both archetypal representations. Out, no. The romantic idea of the noble savage became some sort of whimsical new age mm -hmm. thing, and the other one and the other one, the denizen barbarian, became justification for genocide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, listen, we've got to wrap up because I can feel the technological angst in <laughs> a variety of ways. But uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, or Professor Jordan Peterson, I don't know what, what, how to big you up enough with, the, with your prologue. Um, thank you, or title. Thank you very much. I've really found it a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you. Have it you was enjoyed a great it? conversation. Yeah, it was really, it's um, good, I wasn't really it? appreciated the invitation. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Under the Skin. Remember, it was brought to you by my Rebirth Tour. Come and see me in Stockholm this Saturday the 17th at the Waterfront Theatre or in Amsterdam. Even if you're English, go to Amsterdam on Tuesday. Get out of your tiny mind. No, don't do that if you've got a drug problem. Uh, you know, stay fully sentient and conscious and come and see me at the IFAS in Amsterdam this Tuesday. So Stockholm on Saturday, Amsterdam on Tuesday. Come on the road, abandon your life, follow me, give up your jobs and families, tour the world, learning this great, spontaneous, improvised wisdom. Also check out my book, Recovery. You can get that on Amazon or you can listen to it on Audible. Thanks very much for listening. Finally, give us five stars on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever you listen and uh, tell your friends to listen to this podcast. You know deep down, underneath it all, behind it all, beyond it all, I love you. Thank you.